Uh, let me put this away. Hi, my name's Brad. It's uh, good for you to see. Good for you to be here. It's good for me to see you today. Uh, happy you can see me too. Uh, there's one more quick announcement. Uh, as you're on your way out, uh, Bethany has this uh, ministry called Stephen Ministry. It's a great uh, ministry to help people, and it's walking alongside people that are having, uh, you know, how life's ups and downs happen, especially this time of year, and sometimes just need to talk. Uh, Stephen Ministry is out there, and our friend, I am so sorry, Ellen. She's right there. She will be at the table. So on your way out, uh, stop and see them, see what they're all about. They're recruiting uh, new Stevens ministers uh, for the next year. And we have Ellen and then Matt right here, who I caught him yawning already. He's a Steven minister. He goes to Ballard here. So if you have questions, see them and they can fill you in with everything that they're doing. Uh, It's a great, great ministry that we have. Uh, Would you pray with me? And we'll get started with now arriving. Father, thank you. Uh, that this time of year we can stop, pause, and focus on your arrival. The way you came and you met us in our place, uh, you moved into the neighborhood, as one author had said it, uh, and you became like us. You put on human skin uh, so that you could feel, experience, and be around us, and we thank you for that. And so, Lord, as we continue to in worship, uh, may our ears be opened. May your spirit continue to work in our hearts, in our minds, and in this place uh, as, as you teach us what uh, your arrival might mean. And it's your name we pray. Amen. I took my mom to the airport a couple weeks ago. And uh, it's always interesting going to the airport nowadays. I might be old enough, but how many of you remember how airports used to be? Yes. Great. I remember driving there, parking, and then going and sitting for grandma and grandpa to come sitting by the gate, and it was awesome. And, and then we, when my aunts and uncles would leave, we'd come by, or we, we'd come like an hour or so early, we'd get dinner, we'd hang around in the airport, and then we'd watch planes come land and take off, and we'd, we'd pretend like we knew where they were going. And It was, it was just a fun experience. And, and, and some people are growing up nowadays never having that experience, and I'm sad for you, uh, but things have changed. Uh, remember that day in, in September, uh, when September 11th happened, and all of a sudden, the joy of going to the airport was gone. I remember flying uh, a couple weeks after 9-11 happened, and it was, we, we flew in November, it was November 17th, and we were, we were flying to my brother's wedding in Texas, and it was the first time I had seen something like this. I only saw things like this in, in like Mexico when we'd go down there surfing, but I saw armed military walking the halls of Ontario International Airport. And I was like, this is so surreal. And my brother and I were going through security, and it was a long, drawn-out process, and he was randomly selected. And uh, I, I said, yeah, make sure you hide your, uh, your thing, Scott, as I walked away. And they all looked at me, and they looked at him, and they said, come with me. Uh, and they put him into a secondary inspection, and my brother looked at me like, you suck. <laughs> And then we got on the plane, and I, he, he had a good time. But he was just thoroughly in, investigated. But I remember now, things have changed. Everything is, has shifted for us. Our world, that was the first time I realized that our world's broken. That it's not just happy times anymore. There's real present danger. That was when I realized it. I had gone 20 
some odd years, 79, 2001, do the math. I was that old, and I realized I had gone that long without with thinking that the world was fine. How, I don't know where you were when you fi- finally came to that realization that this world is broken. Maybe it was earlier. Maybe it was the JFK assassination. Maybe it was your time in Vietnam. Maybe it was the first or second Persian Gulf War. Maybe it was reading about the genocides in Rwanda or the Congo. Uh, maybe it was studying other genocides and, and seeing just the evil that humans could come up with. Maybe it was reading about the invisible children in Uganda, the child soul soldiers. Or maybe it was the Columbine shooting, the Sandy Hook shooting, the Florida nightclub shooting, Vegas. Vegas. Maybe it's this caravan. Maybe it's the tear gas. Maybe it's political unrest, threats of war, diseases. Seattle Times article talked about higher suicides and drug overdose rates. I don't know where you're at or what happened where things just shifted for you and you realize this place is broken. Maybe it was personal. Maybe someone did something. Someone said something. Someone acted a certain way. A hope that you have was dashed and at that time you felt powerless used, unimportant. And sadly, you and I have probably grown accustomed to hearing these stories. And they all remind us of the desire to go back to a time where these kind of things weren't on the front page of the newspaper anymore. I stopped getting phone alerts on the news because it was always something new happened. And I was just like, I, this is depressing. I can't handle this. Our world is broken, and, and every time we see something, it, it awakens this desire for these kind of things not to happen. A few weeks ago, we were in uh, Romans 8, and Megan was teaching, and she read this passage. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption to sonship and daughtership, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope that we were saved. In, in this hope we were saved. Not hope that we were saved, we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we, if we hope... For what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We, our bodies groan. Our nature groans. We are all feeling this ache. But inside of us is this hope. The hope for things to be better. The ache for things to be right. Uh, the longing for things to be made whole again. This hope and longing that is described here in Romans 8 is the same hope and longing that Isaiah writes in, in Isaiah 35. This next few weeks, we'll be looking at Advent through the lens of Isaiah. Isaiah is written at a time where hope was scarce. It didn't used to be like what it was when Isaiah was writing. In fact, things used to be a lot better for Isaiah. In 931 BC, we're going to get nerdy here for a few minutes. Just go with it. I have maps to help. In, in 931 BC, the kingdom of Israel was united and everything was going great. It was the golden age. Drake, there's the map. It's small. That was when David took over from Saul. And then when David took over, it expanded and expanded and the enemies were falling. 
And then his son Solomon, after David dies, Solomon takes over. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I didn't put a thing of Solomon's reign up there. But look in the back of your Bibles. It's probably there. Uh, But the kingdom of Israel becomes a world superpower, so to speak. They're dominating. There's no one that can stand against them. They have a dynasty. They have a huge kingdom. And then Solomon dies. And then after Solomon dies, uh, uh, Rehoboam took over. Things didn't go well. People don't like Rehoboam, especially the northern parts of, of the nation, the, 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 those to the north. They didn't like what Rehoboam was doing. He said, you forgot about our tribes. And in Second Kings, you can see their argument. And so the southern half of, of Israel decided to secede and go on their own and have their own king. And the northern half had their, their king. They had Rehoboam and Jeroboam, just to make it more confusing. They, one said one was in Jerusalem and the other was up in Bethel. And they had two kingdoms and they were divided. And there, there it is. They had two kingdoms and then their golden days of Israel were said to be over. They started flirting with other gods they started worshiping other deities. They brought in idols. They, they ignored the law. They started to say, this is how we're going to live. And it's Deuteronomy. The end of Deuteronomy pro- prophesied this. They walked away from what they were intended to be. And when they did that, sin became, came in. Both kingdoms were declining. And when they declined in their strength, other nations started to pick up momentum. And then you have the kingdom of Assyria who comes and they start taking over. They were brutal. They have a king whose, whose name I can't pronounce, but it starts with a shin and ends with an in shrib. Uh, it's easy for me to say. Some people can't. But they, they, have, they, have that, they have this king who was brutal, and he expanded Assyria because Israel wasn't there to stop him. And then he took over. And slowly but surely, he began to invade and cherry-pick pieces of Israel off the northern kingdom. And finally, in 722 BC, they were completely sent into exile. The southern kingdom followed about 200 years later in 536. Babylon, Assyria declined, and then Babylon came. And they took the southern kingdom, and they shipped them into exile. Exile wasn't nice. This was a time when they were living in other people's lands. They're away from their families. They had no sense of identity. They had no place to worship. They were suppressed in how they worshiped. It wasn't a a good thing. In fact, they would say in our language, their hope and dream of what Israel was promised to be in Genesis was circling the drain, and they're without hope. They're without hope. And Isaiah writes to them during this time when hope is fading. And Isaiah writes to reignite this idea of hope. He prophesies. He reports. He gives these oracles, all of which point to the idea that in Christ, in the coming Messiah, Yahweh will save us. Yahweh being their God. And it's kind of funny. Isaiah's name means Yahweh saves. So imagine... We've said this before with the prophet's mom's coming out to yell for dinner, and she says, Isaiah, and all around these people in exile, he's saying, Yahweh saves, Yahweh saves, this constant reminder that there is a chance for us to hope again. He writes to these people who've seen death, destruction, and chaos, and the loss of innocence, and he says that God can make this better. He's going to make this better. There is a path that we can hope again. 
which is the promise that we have in Advent. Which is why we stop for these five weeks and look to the coming of Christ because in Christ we have that same hope. Advent tells us, it's, it's a reminding us that there's reason and a reminder to hope again. A hope that God will make a way through the most difficult of circumstances. Where the roads were full of obstacles of death, destruction, fear, chaos. We can hope that God is at work repairing what has hindered him from moving towards us. And blocked us from moving towards him. So that we can experience his wholeness, his hope, his peace and his grace. In today's text in Isaiah 35, we see three of these themes popping up. We see hope, we see healing, and we see peace. If you look in your Bibles at Isaiah 35, uh, the chapter right before it is Isaiah 34, which isn't that interesting, but it is when you look at it this way. Isaiah 34 explains what happens to nations when they put their trust in something other than God. When they put their hope in other superpowers, when they put their hope in themselves or, or into the political powers of the day. For them, it was Egypt and Assyria when they thought, well, these people will save us. It always led to destruction. And so Isaiah 34 is foretelling what's going to happen to these nations who trust, trust in anything other than, their, than Yahweh. Isaiah 35 is the mirror image. Isaiah 35 starts and says, this is what happens when you put your hope and trust in God. This is what it looks like. It's, it, it holds them up as, as contrasting. Here's the grim picture, and here's what it can be like. Uh, it speaks of a destiny of hope and wellness and restoration. And so the first thing we see, see in Isaiah 35 is that he gives us reason to hope instead of fear. Isaiah's writing to this group of people who have habitually trusted in other things. And because of that, they've been exploited, they've been disappointed, they've been ridiculed. Have you ever been through a season of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment? Have you ever, am I the only one? Great. I'm just going to go ahead and assume maybe three of you are like me. So we've been through that. Carrie and I had season after season of hopes getting up and then crashing down. And what happened, if you're like me, is you sometimes then you get to a point where you're like, I don't want to hope anymore. I don't want to get excited about this because I don't want to be let down. I don't want a missed appointment. I don't want disappointment. I'm tired of that. So it's easier just to clam up, harden yourself, and never feel again because you're afraid to hope. I remember going through that time. We were in California during one of the first times of that. And I remember sitting in our friend's living room and we're just expressing what's happening and what we're feeling. And our friends Ryan and Stephanie just listened like good friends do. And, and, and they offered us a beer and, and said, wow, you've been through a lot. And we're like, yeah, we have. And then uh, Stephanie, would, she, she said, it feels like you guys are dry. And she was dead on. We were dry. And then in her prophetic type way, that's the way God had gifted her. She had, had prayed and, and the picture that she got around us when she was praying was that there's rain all around us, but it just kind of misses us. Like we're in some kind of rain shadow and all we have is the dry land. And she was spot on. It's exactly how we were feeling. They were right. We were in the desert. We were afraid to hope again. 
And every time our hope would be dashed and it would be like a scab ripping off and it would just hurt all over again like a fresh wound. That's where we were. Israel was there too. They've been weakened by exile. They've been numbed by sin. They've experienced the fall of the kingdom. They have families ripped apart. Uh, They're living in foreign lands. And all of this while being told that they are people of God's promise. So they get their hopes up again. And then another nation comes. They get their hopes up again. And then they're shipping people off to the capital of Assyria. And so they're stuck. And Isaiah comes to them and he says in in 35, rain will come. God can be trusted. And when it does, here's how he describes it. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It's a flower, in case you're wondering. uh, It'll burst into bloom. It's a horrible name for a flower. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of God. In the ancient Near East, he's holding these famous places of land of Carmel, Sharon, and Lebanon. And he's contrasting these glorious places to the desert places. The parched land, the wilderness. They were used to that kind of thing. But every, every spring when the rains would come, these flowers would come and they'd burst into life. Have any of you ever seen the wildflowers in Death Valley? There's wildflowers in Death Valley. They are gorgeous, but they only come once a year. Death Valley is the hottest place in North America, I think. But when it actually rains, the wildflowers come to life and Death Valley doesn't look like death anymore. This is what he's describing. The desert will come alive. They will blossom it's this, the image that Isaiah is creating and is those places where you were dry, those places where you're scabbed over, God is going to make them bloom again. And he uses this word, parak. Can you all say parak? This side. Thank you, you're awake. Uh, he says parak, and he says it three times in two verses. It means this. It means to burst out, to fly His point is that these places that are dry in your life, Israel, there's hope where your hopes have been dashed over and over again. You're going to be able to hope again. There's going to be new life, but it's not just surface level hope. When you hope in something that you conjure up on your own energy, the hope is pretty shallow because you know it's yourself. I fixed my car once, once, uh, (laughs) And I inherited my dad's car after he died. We needed a car, and the family decided I should get this car, and I didn't argue, and we took it. And uh, in California, my dad had a sunroof, but he probably never realized that the drain on the sunroof, because it doesn't rain, uh, was clogged and not working. So it comes up here, and I'm driving around for three days, and then I notice my sock is wet. Uh, the, and I was like, what is happening? This is an expensive car to fix. This isn't good. And then I do some research, go on the forums, and I realize that the sunroof drain is known to clog, and they haven't really sent a recall about it because it's just known. It's a big deal. It's 12 years old, whatever. And so I decide I'm going to fix it. So I do it. I go get the tube, and I super glue it together with this little fancy thing that I ordered on Amazon, and I put the new drain in, the tube, the circle, all that stuff, and I stick it in the side, and I silicone it in, and I close the sunroof, and I go, well, I hope that works. And there was this thing all summer. I fixed it, but I don't know if it's really fixed. And then rain comes, and it's like, okay, I'm going to go out there, and is it going to be wet or not? 
because I fixed it. I didn't know if it was actually fixed. It cost me $19.99 to fix. Had I taken it to a mechanic, I would have been like, I just gave you 100, 200 bucks to do this thing I could have done for 20. It's fixed. It's a different kind of trust. Why? Because the mechanic can fix this rather than me trusting in my own abilities to fix sunroof drains. This is what Isaiah is saying. It's okay to hope again because the hope that he's talking about is a hope that's based on the foundation of a God who keeps his promises. He's going to keep his promises. It's safe to hope again. And then he has substance to it. He says, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. They are so without hope that they're afraid and their fear has taken over because they're living life in constant danger. But he's saying you can stand firm. Your knees will be strengthened because this hope is strong. It's an unfailing hope. It's the same hope that Joshua was given. In Joshua 1.9, Moses was dead. He's giving him this, he's got this new job title of leader of the nation of Israel. And he just got it that morning and he's having the oh no moment. And God comes to him in Joshua 1.9 and says, have I not commanded you? This is the second time he said it in this passage. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In both places, it's not this, hey, you shouldn't be afraid. Uh, Have you considered not being scared? It's never a question. It's never an interrogative or a suggestion. It's a straight-up command. Don't be afraid. God is with you. There's no reason to be afraid. Judah has this fear of monsters because he's three, and we all have that fear. Our monsters just change over time. Sometimes they're actual monsters when you're three, and then when you get to be older, they're monsters like bank accounts and 401Ks. We all have these monsters in our lives that we're afraid of. But I've been reading to him these storybook Bibles and, and where, where he's fascinated with the story of David and Goliath, and I totally sanitize it for him. I don't say the word dead or hit him in the head and all that because he's three. And so... But I tell him, David was able to stand up to this mean Goliath because he had the ability not to fear because God was with him. It's the same promise that was given to Joshua. It's the same promise that was given to Moses and Abraham and Gideon all the way through Scripture. It's the same promise that's given to Isaiah. It's the same promise that's given to you and I. We don't need to fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. For anything like me, my fears come, and they come often when I'm thinking of what's next. When I'm trying to predict, when I'm trying to figure things out, I start thinking of everything possible that can go wrong. Instead of thinking of what's next, I'm reminded by my wonderful wife, I'm reminded by my friends and and those who I look up to, they're saying, stop thinking of what could happen and start looking around and seeing what God is doing. You can always imagine something that will happen. What's going to happen next? And start thinking of what God is doing now. Now. You don't have any reason to fear now. Live now. God will take care of the next. It sounds great, right? But we're going through some real things. How do we do this? And Isaiah even suggests that. He says your hope, the hope that you can have, will turn into healing. At the, end of verse, uh, at the end of verse three, he says this, he will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come and save you. Isn't that fun? 
vengeance and divine retribution. It sounds like a movie tag for the next Terminator movie. It's, it's, it's this idea that God's going to come and he's got a list and he's going to pick off everybody. And that's what it reads like. And the phrase is God's going to take care of this. But there's something else here. Retribution means what we think it means, but retribution in the Hebrew also means something else. It carries with it this idea that is, it's as if to wean a child. It, it's this concept of maturity. It's going from helpless to being able to stand on your own. In other words, he's not just going to give you hope. He's going to enable you to walk. And then look what he says. The idea is that he didn't just come to, take, to give you hope. He gave you the ability to have hope and to heal you and change you. God wants you to be healed. He wants you to be able to stand on your own. And then he gives examples further on. He says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The, deaf will be, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like deer. The mute of the tongue shout for joy. Look at these words that he's saying. How the, the blind will be opened, the deaf unstopped, the lame. It's not just that the lame person's going to get up and start walking and be wobbly like Bambi was when it first started walking in, in, the, in the movie. It's not knees knocking. It's going to run and it's going to leap like deer. The, the waters will gush forth in the wilderness. All of this points to this, those dead places in your life. The dry places where the soils got so dry and cracked it's starting to peel up. We've seen those images. Those places will be reopened. God will breathe life into them. The deaf will be able to hear. The blind will be able to see. The fears and anxiety that we battle, the depression that we fight, was meant to be done away with forever because of the arrival of Christ that we have. This is what Isaiah is pointing to. We can hope again because of Christ. But there's so much more. It's not just that he gives you hope. He gives you the ability to change. He gives you the ability to leave, live again. It, it, there's this, uh, the, it says the waters will gush forth. It's not just the stream in the desert. It's gushing. The Hebrew word there is bakah. You want to say it? Bakah. It kind of sounds like a parrot. Bakah. It's used, the first time it's used, when you look at languages, you always want to see where the word came from, how it was used. The first time this word was used was in Genesis 7. Noah is looking out the, the, the window of the ark, wondering if it's ever going to rain, and then all of a sudden, waters bacawed. They started gushing. It's not this localized flood in your basement. It's a worldwide gushing flood that takes everything over. It's not a small amount of water. The deaf are hearing. The blind are seeing. Those who couldn't walk are running down the street. They're being able to walk again. The water is gushing from forth from places you never thought there was water. This is something to hope for. And then when you examine the life of Christ, what do we see? Uh, we see Bartimaeus in Mark 10. Immediately, he received sight. The blind were seen. In John 4, 13, uh, there's a woman who, who wasn't living the greatest life. And Jesus is talking to her and he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of this water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will, spring, will be a, in them, I can read, 
give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The word welling up, trace it back, it comes from the word baka, which means gushing. It'll be the eternal life and they'll never be able to extinguish where this water is coming from. All of these things happened in Christ. Uh, Bartimaeus being healed in, in Mark 2, John 5, the Gospels to, to show us uh, that Jesus healed people who couldn't walk. They were leaping and jumping for joy. And what does this all mean? It means that your story becomes his story. The places where you're broken, the places where you need hope, God is wanting to breathe into hope. He wants to arrive in you. My friend Scott, we heard him a few weeks ago. He likes to yell. He'd probably yell this. Uh, He's the pastor at North. He says, your test that you're going through becomes your testimony. He speaks in taglines. It's great. Your test becomes your testimony. This is what Isaiah is pointing to. Those places where you are weak will become strong, not just for you, but for God to use you, to redeem you, to set you up so you can walk again. We can have hope. We can have healing. And because of the arrival, we have hope, healing. And the last one we see is that there's peace. Isaiah 35, 8, and a highway will be there. It'll be called the Highway of Holiness. Wish they could have found a better name. It'll, it'll be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. The wicked fools will not go about it. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing and everlasting joy and a crown on their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I love that. Sorrow and sighing. How many times a day do you go, you know that feeling? That'll be gone. A highway of holiness. Uh, Remember, this is a mirror image of chapter 34, and chapter 34 shows us a picture of wilderness. It shows us a place of chaos, a theme that you see over and over in Scripture. Almost on every book is this idea of chaos and God bringing order. And so the decisions of Israel to follow the ways of the kingdoms of the world only brought chaos. And then here in chapter 35, you see God coming and bringing order to the chaos. We see it in Genesis 1. In the beginning, there was chaos, and then God spoke. And then he brought order each and every day of that week. Order to chaos. The roads that they were used to in Jerusalem or in Judea that day were bumpy and curvy and full of potholes, kind of like Jones and every other street. They were Seattle roads, right? Not very nice, and you need special tires to go over them. They were bumpy. And wilderness for the people of Israel didn't sit well. They'd spent 40 years wandering the wilderness. And so this idea of being stuck out there again in the wilderness didn't sit well. It meant more danger. It meant more uncertainty. And so Isaiah comes and he says, guess what? The wilderness that you see around you will be made in order. And then there's going to be a highway, a highway that's easy to travel. You're not going to get lost on it. In those days where the roads were curvy, was always where robbers would sit and hide and lie in wait for you to come, and they would rob you and kill you. So people didn't want to travel. But he says this, there's a road, and all the criminals that are on there, they're, they're not there anymore. It's safe. 
There's movement from wilderness to highway. There's movement from order, from chaos to order. The places where we don't have peace, there's a way for us to go. But there's another observation about highways. Rarely do highways just go one way. There's usually a northbound way and a southbound way and an eastbound and a westbound. And sometimes you're going east, but it says you're going north. And all of these things. Roads go two ways. And it's happening here. Highways go two ways. But in this sense, it comes two ways. One way, for God to come to us. For God to come and meet us. To make order from our chaos. To come right to where we are. To break through our barriers. To come to save, to heal and restore. That's exactly what we see happening in the arrival of Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. God in this was reconciling the world to himself. He was coming to us. He's doing the reconciling work. He's the one traveling to meet us. But we're also told to walk with him. So we go back to him. In a sense, God makes a way for him to come to us and then for us to walk back to him. In fact, if you look at the, throughout the scriptures, our life with God is always considered a walk. In Genesis 17, Abraham was told to walk and be blameless. In Deuteronomy 10, uh, Moses tells the Hebrews to walk in all of God's ways, loving, them with, loving him with his, their whole heart. In 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah asked for a longer life and he was granted it because God says, you've walked before me faithfully and wholeheartedly with your devotion. In John 12, Jesus told his disciples to walk and have light. In 1 John, it says to live in him, we must walk as Jesus is. And then finally, in Ephesians, it says walk in love. In other words, you've been healed, you've been given hope, and you've been set on the right path so that you can walk. God came to give us hope and healing and peace, not so that we can just sit around and contemplate our saved condition until we die. Rather, he delivered us from our sin so that we can participate in his own life in an ongoing progressive way. God has come to make it possible for us to walk in him, to grow in his likeness until the day that we see him with our own eyes where gladness and sorrow will displace fear and trembling. And in the meantime, we can continue to experience his hope and healing and his peace more and more. It's okay to hope again. And for some of us, maybe the idea of hoping is super scary. I get it. There's this concept that we learned a few years ago, uh, and it's the idea of asking God simply for more. Uh, uh, we get this idea that we can only go to God so many times and ask him for something, but the idea, that it's, it's a bad idea. God is a willing father, willing to give out gifts and take care of his children. The problem is we don't ask for it. So the idea of coming and saying, God, a little bit more. We have more of you, more of your spirit, more of your healing, more of your peace, so that we can stand and walk, so that we can pursue you. And so today, maybe you simply need more. It's a dark time. It's a hard time of year. December is a very rough time in this region. 
dark outside, way too early. I think the sun's about to set right now. (laughs) We get depressed. We go through our lives, ups and downs, and then we're struck again with the realization of a broken universe that we sit in. Sometimes we just need to come to God and say, more please. During this time, I need more of you. I need more of you. I need more of your strength. More, more, more. And he's faithful to give you exactly what you need. I need more hope. I need hope in you, not hope in what I can do. I need peace. I need healing. I need strength to walk. And so today we celebrate the first day of of Advent, but we also, the first day of the month, we take communion together. And communion is a sign of Christ coming to us. He arrived so that we could have hope again. We can have peace again. He, ri- he, he arrived to heal us. Isaiah will later write, we'll probably study this, that through him we are healed. Communion offers us a reminder of that sacrifice. We can be healed through him. And so as I invite the communion servers forward, uh, I, I, I want to um, have you do something before you come partake in communion. Is, is ask God for more. What do you need more of? Ask him, more of you, Lord. And then when you come, and it's a picture of his death and resurrection. Uh, If you're not comfortable taking it, you don't have to take it. It's a picture of what he has done for us so that we can receive more of him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that in you we could have more, more peace, more joy, more healing. We can have hope that transcends all understanding. And we are able to walk again. Thank you for this, Father. And in your name we pray. Amen.